Good morning. My name is Chet. I'm one of the pastors. Grab your Bibles. Go to Exodus chapter 21. This morning, we're going to be looking at Exodus 21 through 23, but we're going to approach it differently. And so it's a, it's, it's a, it's a good bit different from the way we've walked through uh, the first half of the book of Exodus. So let's go ahead and read verse 1 together. This is God speaking to Moses, and he says, Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. These are the rules that you shall set before the people of Israel. And when we hit the Ten Commandments, and God speaking to the people of Israel and speaking to Moses at Mount Sinai, we've entered into the section of Scripture known as the law. And actually, it's such a major portion of the Scripture that Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy are often just referred to as the law, the law of Moses or the Torah, which means law. And so this is what uh, Jewish people primarily understood this section to be, which was the law given to the people of Israel for them to know how to be a nation and how to worship and follow God. And so what we're going to do today and what we're going to do over the next, uh, actually the rest of the time we're in Exodus, is we're pretty much going to take things thematically. We're going to zoom out a little bit and cover larger sections because much of the rest of Exodus is given to the law. And primarily in Exodus, it's given to the uh, institution of the priesthood and the building of the tabernacle and the utensils for the tabernacle. So while we've walked through the first bit of Exodus reading verse by verse, we now are going to start zooming out a little bit and taking it in larger pieces. And today, what's in front of us is to try to understand the law as a whole. Not just these next few verses, although this is an example of the law, but try to wrap our head around the law as a whole. What is the law, and how are we as Christians supposed to relate to it? That's pretty much what we're asking. What is the law? How are we as Christians supposed to relate to it? Because if you've ever spoken to someone who is skeptical or critical of Christianity, they may have said something to you like this. Oh, you're a Christian. You say yes. They say, so you believe the Bible? You say yes. They say, so you try to follow the Bible, you obey the Bible, and you say yes. And if you're paying attention to the conversation you're in, you are now aware that you're headed somewhere. And then they say something along the lines of, so you eat shellfish? I notice you cut the corners of your hair. Some of you, that's not true, but for some of you, they got you. Corner hair cutters. With your zero to ten fade, you've broken the law. They say nice polyester blend you've got on there. If you've ever had this conversation, if you know your Bible, your immediate thought is, that's not how this works. If you don't know your Bible or if you're new to this, you might go, I don't even know what you're talking about. Or they might show you the verse and you think, huh, what am I supposed to do? Or if you've ever just, you know, you become a Christian. So you read John, you read Matthew and Mark and Luke, and then you read Paul, and then you read Hebrews, and you've read through the whole New Testament except for Revelation. And you say, should I read Revelation? And someone says, "Mm, maybe go to Genesis. And so you're like, okay, or you just decide, I'm going to go to Genesis. And you start working your way through the first part of the Bible, and you're reading Genesis, and you learn about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph. And then you get into Exodus, and you get, you're like, oh, yeah, all this stuff with Moses. And then you hit Exodus chapter 21, and you go, what has happened? Because you read Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, and you're like, I don't, I don't know what this is, and I don't know what to do with this. And so today, since we've hit that portion of the Scriptures, we're going to zoom out a little bit and answer that question, or attempt to answer that question in the time allowed. So let's pray, 
And then let's, let's jump in. Lord, we ask that we would rightly handle your word, that you would help us to study this as people who take the Bible seriously, who submit to the authority of your word, but who get to approach you through the work of Christ. And so may Jesus receive glory, and may we worship this morning in seeing how wonderful you are, how wonderful your law is, and how wonderful your salvation is. Give us uh, attention and focus and care. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to ask, what is the law? We're going to try to answer that in two ways. What's in the law? And what is the function of the law? What is the purpose of the law? And then we're going to ask, how do Christians relate to the law. So what is, what's, what is the law? And the first part of that is what's in the law. And so I want to show you all a chart. God's righteousness existed forever. It's who he is. He exists in himself as righteous, as holy. And his righteousness exists. And then at some point there's creation where he makes everything else out of his nature, out of his righteousness. He makes Adam and Eve, and Adam and Eve rebel against God, against his righteousness, and they fall into sin. When sin enters the world, death enters the world. And Paul tells us that death reigns from Adam to Moses. And Moses is who's receiving the law here. That there's sin in the world, and there's death in the world, and there's brokenness in the world. But then God, who originally had his people in his place, in his presence, begins to remake that in the book of Exodus. That he's taking his people to be in his place, in his presence, and to learn what it means to be his people. And so we get the giving of the law. And so, as the law is given, we start asking, okay, what do we see? If we're reading through the law, if you read through the books of the law, what content is in there? What are you going to see? And John Calvin gives three categories that I think are very helpful for understanding the content of the law. And those categories are civil, ceremonial, and moral. And in the chart, you'll notice that they're all connected to God's righteousness, but we have morality resting on top of God's righteousness, whereas civil and ceremonial civil and ceremonial are going to be treated a little bit differently from the Bible. Although they're going to grow out of God's righteousness, they're going to be a little bit different. And so I know y'all are all saying, oh, please tell me about what the civil law is. Well, that's what we're about to do. So let me give you examples of civil law. The civil law was given specifically to the people of Israel so that they would know how to relate to one another. It's for their nation. And I'm just going to read some examples that you'll see if you read through the next few chapters of Exodus. Exodus 21, 33 through 34. When a man opens a pit, or when a man digs a pit and does not cover it, and an ox or a donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit shall make restoration. He shall give money to its owner, and the dead beast shall be his. Buy a pit, uh, dig a pit, kill an ox. You bought the ox. It's a real break it, you buy it situation. Verse 20, uh, Exodus 22, verse 5. If a man causes a field or vineyard to be grazed over or lets his beast loose and it feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best in his own field and in his own vineyard. 22, 14. If a man borrows anything of his neighbor and it is injured or dies, the owner not being with it, he shall make full restitution. Much of the civil law has to do with agriculture, has to do with being good neighbors, but it's rules and regulations about how they're going to relate to one another. We also, as you go further in the law, you'll see things about censuses and taxes and how many horses a king can own. Not too many. That's the rule. Uh, and that's kind of what the civil law is, and it was given to the people of Israel as the nation of Israel. 
Then there's ceremonial law. And ceremonial law is going to primarily deal with the worship of God. And it's going to deal with the priesthood, which were those who administered to the people and stood in between the people and God, and the sacrificial system. It's also going to deal with the tabernacle and then later the temple. And so there's a whole lot that deals with being in the nation of Israel with the tabernacle, with the temple, with the sacrificial system, with the priesthood. And so some of the ceremonial laws that you'll see if you were to read through the next few chapters of Exodus are uh, Exodus 22, 29 through 30. You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your oxen and with your sheep. Seven days it shall be with its mother, and on the eighth day it shall be given to me. And there's a way that we already read in Exodus where oxen and sheep are sacrificed, the firstborn, but the firstborn's son would be circumcised and there would be a redemption ceremony where something else was sacrificed. But it's God teaching Israel that they're his firstborn son, that he brought them out of Egypt from the Exodus with the, the ten plagues and with the final plague, which was the redemption of the son, the, 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 uh, the Passover. And so this is training for the people of Israel, but it has to do with their sacrificial system. Or Exodus 23, 18. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened. Or let the fat of my feast remain until the morning. Those are just examples in these few chapters, but there's a lot in the law that has to do with clothing, with the type of sacrifice, for the type of sin, with how you will do the sacrifices, with who can do the sacrifices, with how you'll care for the priests, for what the priests will wear and do, how the feasts will work. There's much in the law that has to do with the temple service and the tabernacle service. And Calvin says that would be ceremonial. As you're reading through this, you're going to see that there's civil law that applies to the nation of Israel. There's ceremonial law that applies to the sacrificial system of the priesthood. And then there's moral law. Now, in the moral law, we began with the Ten Commandments. And moral law, the reason on that chart it was connected to the long line is because these are things that are right or wrong always due to the nature of God. But you can't live in a culture where you say, no, it's okay for us to do that because we're different. We don't have the tabernacle, so we don't have to partake in some of the ceremonial things. And we'll see why in a little bit. But you can't say, well, we're in a different country, so murder's fine. The moral things remain moral. They are right or wrong throughout time and throughout uh, location. And you'll see them showing up and referenced in the law. So uh, in Exodus 21, 22, 23, here's some of the places they show up. Verse 20, uh, chapter 21, verses 12 through 16. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. But if a man, is willful, uh, if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. Verse 15. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. 16, whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Or if you go over to Exodus 22, it says, you shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him. For you were sojourners, those are foreigners, people traveling through in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry, and my wrath will burn, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. 22.19, whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. These are things that are right or wrong regardless, but you can see that it gets a little bit unclear. Exodus 21.12 is a good example. 
Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But then it says, if he did not lie and wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, I'll appoint a place for you in which he may flee. So the first part of that is moral law. It's referring to it's wrong to kill. But then it gives specific things that apply to the nation of Israel. They had cities of refuge. And so you'll see that there's moral law in civil law. And so that if you zoom out, you can clearly see moral, civil, and ceremonial law. But there are times where it's hard to tell which is which. Is the Sabbath moral law or ceremonial law? Or is it both? And then there's ones that are just unclear to us. 22.18, you shall not permit a sorceress to live. So that would have been a form of false worship. It would have been uh, a way to dishonor God, but how are we supposed to apply that? What's the moral part? What's the civil part? Are there things that are just wildly unclear to us, like the back half of 2319? You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Okay, I'm not in danger of doing that, but I have so many questions. Was, was this something that was commonly practiced? Is it just because that's a pretty messed up thing to do? To take both the baby and the milk from the mother? Like, is, that what, is this something that they did around the other nations around them? One of the things you'll see is that there are certain civil laws and laws that God gives to his people that had to do with the nations around them. He says, you're not going to be like them. You're not going to look like them. Is this one of those? Is this moral law forever? So that if I'm doing missionary work in a remote tribe and I see this, I go, no, 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 no. You got to get the milk from that goat. <laughs> Whew, close one. We got to figure out, like, as we're studying, there are some places where it's unclear, but we're trying to approach with wisdom and with a lot of humility. When we read the Old Testament, having the categories of civil, ceremonial, and moral is helpful, but then you have to approach with a lot of humility and a lot of wisdom, and then we get to also approach understanding the purpose of the law, which helps us. And so that's the next thing. That's what's in the law, but what's the function of the law? What does the law do? So I want to give you some examples of what the law does, and then we'll spend more in the back part of the law, uh, back part of my answer on this and what the function of the law is. The first one is, though, the law displays God's righteousness. It helps us understand how good he is, how holy he is. When God says, be holy as I am holy, and then he starts telling the people of Israel what that looks like. If you read through these chapters, one of the things you'll notice is that there are laws to protect slaves. Before, before I go any further, I want to say, uh, whenever I would sit in a sermon and the pastor would say, hey, we're going to read like today. And I said, hey, let's read. And we went to Exodus 21 and I read the first verse. If I open my Bible, I'm going to keep reading. I'm going to see what's coming. And as soon as the pastor did what I did today and zoomed out and said, we're going to just zoom out, I'd be like, no, 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 no. The next verse is about slaves. Coward. <laughs> I want you to answer how that's going to be covered. Like, I want you to talk about that part. I don't want you to just zoom out. And so what I want to tell you is that we actually, next week, Spencer is going to take the tum. Uh, while I may be cowardly, Spencer's not. He'll be here next week. And he's going to take the time to help articulate what do we do with the parts of the law that are hard for us? What do we do with the parts of the law that we disagree with? And specifically, we're going to spend some time on slavery because that shows up in Exodus 21. How are we to understand what God is doing here? So I want you to know we are going to cover that. That's one of the reasons why we work through the Bible the way we do, so that we do cover things that would not be things we would just pick to necessarily go cover. But you'll see... 
God's goodness displayed. And that he puts protections in for slaves. He puts protections in for women, for unborn children, for widows, for orphans, for the poor. That when God talks about being holy as he is holy, what he means is to love and to care for those who have no ability to defend themselves. There's laws in here about just enslaving someone, stealing them and enslaving them, and there's punishment for that. He specifically, what we read a second ago, where he says, if the widows and the childless and the uh, fatherless crawl, cry out to me, he said, I will kill you, and then you'll have widows, and your children will be fatherless, because I'm good, and I don't put up with that. Like, it's, you'll see God's holiness as we read through the law. That's one of the things that is put on display. His righteousness. That's one of the functions of the law is to help us understand who God is, how good God is, and what goodness looks like. Another function of the law is that it restrains sin and promotes flourishing. Much of the civil law is that, and the moral law is that, that it puts a restraint on sin. That it helps say, you can't do this, you can't act like this, there's going to be consequences for that. And because there are restraints on sin, and because there are regulations on how we're going to interact with each other, life works better. One of the reasons why we can travel as easily as we do is that we have rules on our roads. And then we have people in flashy cars that enforce those rules so that we can reasonably trust that that's what's going to happen. And when those rules are understood and followed, things work out well. Near my house, there's a four-way stop. Four-way stops are annoying. They're especially annoying if one side has a lot more traffic, oh no, it wasn't a four-way stop. It was two stop. It was two stop signs and then just traffic. And so you would sit at those stop signs forever. So they came to fix this, and they put in a roundabout. So for a full year, everyone who lived near my house, collectively together, figured out what the heck is a roundabout, <laughs> because it's meant to make things way smoother. But not if everybody slams on brakes all the time or blasts through or has no clue what to do. Or like my wife was riding with one of her friends, gets in it, gets scared and confused, and then just heads the wrong way. <laughs> but now we've learned. And that roundabout has made my life better. And it's there to help things go smoothly. And much of the law is designed for that, that it helps us have regulations that help us know how to interact with one another, and it makes things smoother, and it makes for flourishing. It helps us understand what is good and what is right. Like we spent the time talking about um, children obeying their parents and honoring their parents, and one of the things that we see through that is that it helps life be better for everyone, for the children, for the parent, and for the rest of society, so that much of what God put in here was to help restrain sin and promote flourishing. And we'll spend more time on this one, the law exposes our wickedness. It's one of the functions of the law. One of the primary functions of the law is that it would expose our wickedness. So if you'll read through these chapters, one of the things you'll see is look at how good God is, that he loves, that he protects, that he defends. And you'll also go, my goodness, how messed up are we? I, I, I use this as an example every once in a while, but Kid City, which we take a lot of care to to care for children well, to tend to them well, to protect them. We have rules on what do you do when one child bites another child? And do you know why we have that rule? Because children bite each other, y'all. <laughs> yeah, you're a precious little angel. It's like we're holding them like, yeah, well, they're a biter, you know? So, 
And that's what I notice when I'm reading this. It's like we're messed up. That God has to put in rules. He has to tell Moses, hey, I need you to tell people. Uh, if you hide and then hit someone with a rock and kill them, you're in trouble. If you sleep with an animal, you're in trouble. If you steal, if you lie, if you cheat, you're in trouble. And the reality is, the reason he has to say that is because we, humanity does that. We do that. That often some of the reasons we don't do some of the things we want to do is because the law restrains us. We know that there will be consequences, not because our good and pure hearts. And the reason I know this to be true is because you slow down when you see a police officer. It has nothing to do with your purity of your heart. It has to do with the enforcement of the law. And much of the law is meant to show us our wickedness, but it's beyond that. It's not just going to reveal our wickedness. It actually was one of the primary purposes of the law. So I want you to see this. This is Romans 5.20. This is Paul talking about the law. He's trying to teach the people. Now he's answering for them. What, what has Jesus done? How do we understand the law in light of what Jesus has done? He says this. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. But do y'all see that? The law came in to increase the trespass. Now, we would primarily think that the law came in to stop it, but God understands how we work. We were already sinning. When the law comes in and tells us we're sinning, it doesn't make us stop sinning. It makes us sin the way we already were, while also now breaking the law. It helps display our sinfulness. It increases it. We spent the past several weeks talking through the Ten Commandments. We talked about anger. We talked about lust. We talked about covetousness. We talked about lying. And all that's happened for a lot of us is we just notice it in ourselves now more. It didn't fix it necessarily. Just learning about these things doesn't fix it. Just knowing what covetousness is doesn't necessarily eradicate it from our hearts. We have to have another process for that. We've got to go to Jesus with that. Just knowing about it, all it does is display it, show it. So at 2 Corinthians 3, Paul actually calls the law this. He says, for if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, he's talking about the law, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. See, what we think often is that the law was given to make the people righteous that it was given so that they would learn how to be good. It was actually given to show them that they couldn't. It's a ministry of condemnation. And I know some of y'all are thinking, I didn't even realize that was like a ministry option. <laughs> like a clothing ministry, like if we're going to set up a little ministry fair, and you're like, yeah, I'm starting a new ministry. It's a ministry of condemnation. People are like, oh, I'm not doing Kid City. I'm doing that one. <laughs> what do we do? Sounds fun. No, it's not. That was the law. But it came in specifically to condemn that the law that accuses does not also save, it condemns. The law that comes in and shows you that you're a lawbreaker imprisons you in sin. That's what Galatians 3 is going to say. It says, is the law contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. Now, I want to pause for just a second. It is possible that some of you have come around started being a part of, you're like, I got to get my life straight. And you're searching for life. And what you think is, I'm going to go be a part of a church, and they're going to tell me what I need to do. And what you mean is, they're going to tell me how to sort this out, how to get better, how to be stronger, how to be more moral. And I want you to know, 
if there was a law that could do that, then righteousness would have come that way. But righteousness doesn't come that way. It comes through Christ. All that you will learn if you come and say, I'm going to be good, is that you are not. That's the first step. Welcome. We're glad you get to the first step. But we've got to go further than that. But that's what he's saying is that the law could not give life. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So what does the law do? It imprisons things in sin. It says, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. So the law reveals our wickedness and and condemns us and imprisons us in it. But let's pull our chart back up. The law delivers us to Christ. That condemnation brings us to Jesus. The law is meant to point us and deliver us to Christ. So the law, that's the, the fourth function of the law I want us to see, is that it brings us to Christ, and Christ fulfills the law. And the way he does that is that he fulfills the moral aspect of the law in himself. He fulfills the ceremonial aspect of the law by becoming the priest and the sacrifice. And he remakes a people, the church. He is also the official Israel. So he fulfills all aspects of the law and then renews them in us. And so I want us to see that. Matthew 5, 17. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So if you ever were like, well, Jesus got rid of the law. The answer to that is no, he didn't. He fulfilled it, which is better. He doesn't come and just remove it. He comes in and completes it. He comes in and fulfills it. And therefore, the law applies to us, but only through Christ. And so we get the goodness of Christ working, the law working in the goodness of Christ on our behalf. And so let's hopefully try to understand that a little more. So here's what he does. He does this by being righteous, that he is without sin. And therefore, Romans 8, 3 and 4 says it this way. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, which is produce righteousness in you by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh so jesus comes takes on flesh dies for sin and accomplishes in his morality in his goodness in his obedience what we could not and then it says this in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh meaning our own effort but according to the Spirit, meaning what Jesus has done, and trust and faith in Him. The righteous requirement of the law has been fulfilled in you. So if someone says, wait, do you eat shellfish? You go, yeah, because the righteous requirement of the law has already been fulfilled in me, up top. They won't know what you're talking about, but you'd be right. That the righteous requirement of the law has already been fulfilled through the work of Jesus. So what Romans 10, 4 says, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness, to everyone who believes. That the righteous requirements are fulfilled, and so therefore, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for all who believe. That if we believe in Christ, he has made us righteous. Have you ever gotten to go hang out with a really rich person? Or a really cool person? And so for a day, you just got to be rich for a day or cool for a day? 
Like you went to a party with your cool cousin, and so everyone just assumed you were cool because you were with them. It wasn't true, but you got to be cool for a day. If you could keep your mouth shut, you're still cool. Jesus has imparted, imputed his righteousness to us, that we've been made righteous through his work, and then he works to impart it, which is he changes us over time, but that we are righteous through Christ because he has fulfilled the moral requirements of the law on our behalf. He also fulfills the ceremonial portions by being the priest and the sacrifice. So I'm going to read something in Hebrews 7 that is addressing this. Now, he's addressing it in a kind of a complicated way, and he's tying a bunch of things together. But we're going to read one section of that, and then we're going to move a little further down towards his conclusion. But it says this, Hebrews 7, verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, meaning if the priesthood that was given, it says, for under it the people received the law. So it was the Levitical priesthood that had the law, that gave the law, that were the intermediaries between people and God. If it could have, righteousness could have come that way, perfection could have come that way. Then he says, and this is in reference to the stuff he's been talking about, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than the one named after the order of Aaron. And he's talking about a prophecy that's talking about Jesus, who's going to come and be a new priest, and a priest forever. So he says, hold on a second. If the Levitical priesthood could have brought perfection, why would you need a new one? It's a rhetorical question. It couldn't bring perfection. We needed a new one. Jesus comes and fulfills that. As he walks it out, he gets to verse 22, and he says this, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Jesus is the new priest. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. That Jesus died, he rose again, and death no longer has dominion over him, and he stands forever as a priest. Our priest, our intermediary between us and God. That in the people of Israel, they could not just approach God on their own. They had to have a priest that stood in between them, and we have a high priest who stands in between us and God. And then it says this, Consequently, because of this, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. It's not that the priesthood has been abolished. We have a high priest. His name is Jesus. It's not that intercession and an intermediary has been abolished. We get to relate directly to God through Jesus, who is our high priest, who is our intermediary. It's just us to Jesus who's brought us in to this relationship. It's, he didn't get rid of it. He fulfilled it. But he's not just the priest. He's also the sacrifice. He's the whole priesthood and the whole sacrificial system because all of God's promises find their yes in Jesus. Verse 26, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners. That's the him fulfilling the moral requirements of the law, exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. So, if we were the people of Israel receiving this law, it would be teaching us how to be a nation. 
It would be equipping us for how to relate to one another. And, and in that way, it would restrain sin and it would promote flourishing. But it would also imprison us in our wickedness. That as best we tried to fulfill it, we would still need someone to stand in between us and God. And even that person would have to make sacrifices on behalf of their own sin. And that even if you perfectly tried to do your best to fulfill the law, you still needed blood to be sacrificed for your sins. And they were continual. That you and your sin would have to go back and say, I've sinned again. I need another sacrifice. I need something to pay my debt again. I need something to die on my behalf again. And over and over and over and over there was blood spilled over and over and over and over again to pay for what you had earned in yourself, which was a death. God gave a sacrifice that would pay that debt for you so that you would not have to receive the punishment. He was giving you something in your place. So Jesus fulfills the law in his perfect obedience to it, in his intermediary, intercessory role as the high priest, and in his sacrifice on our behalf. So we have a sacrifice, we have a high priest, and we have righteousness through the work of Christ on our behalf. So how does a Christian relate to the law? Well, we relate to the law through Jesus who's fulfilled it on our behalf. So what does that mean? What do we do with the law? Well, Romans 3.31 says this, Paul's talking all these ideas out. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So you would think, hold on, I've got faith in Jesus, so I just throw the law out. And he says, no, we uphold the law, but we uphold the law as it runs through Jesus to us. That we uphold the law as good, we uphold the law as right, as righteous, because of what it was meant to do, which was to imprison us in sin and deliver us to Jesus. To give us an opportunity for a sacrifice and a priest. Romans 7, as he's talking about the law displaying his sin, he said, So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So we get to approach the law as Christians in humility and wisdom, knowing that it's good, knowing that it displays God's righteousness, knowing that it gives us clarification. When the New Testament says there should be no sexual immorality, and we want to ask, what does that include? Well, the Old Testament spells a lot of things out. So we get to go in wisdom and learn, this is what God means by sexual immorality. This is what God means by generosity. This is what my God means by caring for the poor. All things that we're called to do, but we get to approach in wisdom, knowing that this law does not imprison us, does not, uh, is not our guardian anymore. We're under the law of Christ, but we get to follow him in obedience. So you'll see that Christ fulfills the law. Not this, the, ch the chart. Yeah. He fulfills the law. And on this side, we have the church where we belong to each other. We have Christ who's fulfilled the ceremonial portions of the law. He's our high priest and our sacrifice. And we have our obedience and Christ's obedience. So we have his perfect obedience and then our imparted righteousness where he's working in us to lead us in obedience as we follow him. So it helps us understand what he means. It helps us walk in obedience. It still functions as a ministry of condemnation. If you are not sheltered, by Christ, you are imprisoned in sin. If he is not your sacrifice, you have no sacrifice. If he is not your high priest, you have no high priest. All you have is condemnation. If you have not trusted in Jesus, if you have shown up today to say, I'm going to be good, I'm going to be moral, I'm going to work this out. No, you are not. You are going to be condemned and imprisoned and destroyed for your wickedness.
but there's good news in Christ who died to save sinners. So how do we relate to the law? We worship Jesus, and we thank Jesus. We just went through the Ten Commandments. There's hundreds more. And as we went through it, I hope you saw how much of a sinner you are. Because that's one of the things we're meant to see. And I hope you saw how good Jesus is, that he would justify the ungodly, that he would redeem the wicked, that he would claim his enemies and make us his through his sacrifice on our behalf. I hope that when we read the law, if you're reading through the Old Testament, I hope you would see God's goodness. And I hope you would see how much blood needed to be shed for your sin. And I hope there would be times when you would take the book of Leviticus and you would say, thank you, Jesus that you paid for me. Thank you, Jesus, that I'm not imprisoned in my sin and condemnation. Thank you, Jesus, that you rose and you conquer and you have an intercessory work that you do on my behalf forever. Thank you, Jesus. May we be people who read the law and worship our glorious King who redeems us out of condemnation. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your law that it is righteous and holy and good. And we thank you for your son that redeems us out of condemnation, that rescues us, that fulfills the righteous requirement of the law on our behalf and then fulfills it in us through the work of the spirit. We thank you for your son who saves sinners, who sacrificed himself, who reigns as our high priest. We thank you, Lord, that we get to be a part of the fulfilled work of your promises through Christ. And may we worship his holy name and delight in his goodness and be people who are free in the light and the work of Christ to the glory of his name. Amen. The band's going to come back up. We're going to sing as people who have been set free from sin. If you have not trusted in Jesus, do that. Go to him and say, I'm a sinner who needs a sacrifice. I need hope. I need help. He will save you, and he's able to save to the uttermost all those who come to him. And so we're going to sing, and in a moment after we sing, we're going to celebrate baptism. And baptism is a physical sign, a physical representation of what we've just been talking about. That we were imprisoned in our sin, imprisoned in condemnation, but that Jesus came and he died, and therefore we died with him and we trust in him. We're crucified with Christ, we're buried with him in baptism, and we're raised to new life. And we trust that if Jesus died, we die with him, and if Jesus rises to new life, we also rise with him. That if he lives, we live because of the work of Jesus. Baptism, as we celebrate this in a moment, is not a declaration of a person who has finally decided to get their life right who is going to, in the work of themselves and in their morality, come fix everything. No, baptism is a declaration that without Christ, we would be dead and buried in our sin, hopeless and in the grave. But because Jesus rose, we rise, and he washes our sin away, and he makes us new. That's one of the reasons why we go backwards in baptism. We're buried. It's one of the reasons why the church stands in to put on display that we did not do this on our own, that Jesus did this and Jesus raises us. That's why nobody walks into the baptism pool, washes themselves off, and goes, I did it! We're celebrating the work of Christ and we're going to make much of his glorious name because he redeems sinners out from under the condemnation of the law. Let's sing.